0: Okay, book your good morning. Great to see everybody. I hope you don't mind that I'm sitting down. I hurt my leg this week. Yes, getting older. Okay, I want to dedicate our learning this morning. Tonight and tomorrow are my beloved aunts, Yerat So we'll dedicate our learning to Shandel Golda Bas for whom one of my daughters is named. My beloved, feisty, wonderful aunt who uh, we miss. So our learning should be in her memory. Uh, This week we have the privilege of reading Parshas Vayakel. And when you read Parshas Vayakel, if you feel a sense of deja vu, it's very understandable, because we have all just been there before. Vayakel is almost verbatim, a repetition of Parshas Truma, as Pekudei is the shadow or the echo of Parshas Tetzaveh. So of course the pressing question is why we're reading it all over again. We addressed that a little bit last week, when we talked about the Chaita Egel, as precipitating the gift of the Mishkan. That the Mishkan was not in a vacuum, it's not that God decided out of nowhere to create a home for Himself, but rather the idea was the Mishkan was the response, the validation of the very human and the very authentic need to have something tangible with which to connect to Hashem. So the Mishkan was first given to us, it's the bookends surrounding the, uh, the Chaita Eagle. The Ramban is a different reason, which maybe we'll get into a little bit today. So quickly, as is our custom, a, a brief overview of the Parsha, and then we'll delve into our specific psukim, some really fascinating things to share with you this morning. So our Parsha begins with a reference to the observance of Shabbos yet again. We keep saying Shabbos and the Mishkan go together, and we know we derive the laws of Shabbos from That which we practiced in building the Mishkan. There are 39 categories of creative labor. We'll get into this also momentarily. But how did our rabbis know? The Torah is ambiguous. We'll see in a moment. It only tells us one of the Malachas. How did we know the other 38? How did we know what was forbidden on Shabbos? How did we know? So, of course, we derive it from the Mishkan. And we learned that from our parasha. Whatever went into the building of the Mishkan was deemed a creative labor. In other words, it's only valuable if it can be used in Avodes HaKodesh. That which was used in creating spiritual space in this world is deemed meaningful enough to have to refrain from it in order to be able to rest on Shabbos. There's a very interesting Rav Asher Weiss, Shlita, who was with us recently, the Minchas Asher. He gave a shir on Shabbos afternoon. His position, which is very unique, is that the rabbis had actually worked backwards. He quoted a Yerushalme, a Talmud Yerushalmi, That... First, the rabbis intuited what was considered forbidden on Shabbos. How do you preserve the spirit of Shabbos? And once we knew something was forbidden, then we can go through the exercise of figuring out exactly which bucket to place it in, which of the 39 acts of creative labor. So, for example, Rav Asher Weiss has a very strict opinion, whereas most people see some forms of electricity as being only rabbinically forbidden... Rav Asher Weiss sees it as biblically forbidden. He sees it as falling under the general generic umbrella of protecting the sanctity and the spirit of, of Shabbos. So again, that's learned from the beginning of our Parsha. Yet again, we see the juxtaposition of Shabbos and the Mishkan. And then we go back in time. We have the call that, similar to the beginning of Parsha's Truma, K'chum itrem, Truma, Go take from yourselves a gift we spoke at length, the difference between taking versus giving, and the idea that with every gift, we are really receiving. And then we go through the detailed ingredients, materials, for the building of the Mishkan, the dimensions, the architectural plans of the Mishkan. We have the selection of B'Tzalel, and again, he is endowed in last week's parsha already with his divine wisdom, ruach Hashem, Chachma, Bina, and Das. He has Chabad. B'Tzalel is the first Chabad neker. And, uh, and then the Torah goes on. We have the work begins, the building of the curtains, the cover, and the partitions. If you look in your stone chumash and you flip the pages, you see even Rashi had nothing to say because he covered it all. Parshish Truma, Vayaka, really is a repetition. The making of the Aron, the making of the cover of the Aron, the Shulchan, the Menorah, the, uh, the Mizbeach for the Ketores, and the Kior. It's interesting, the Kior now appears with the other Kilim. Parshish Truma did not include the kior the Wash Basin. It only appeared in Parshas Kisisa last week, two weeks after Truma. But yet here in Vayaka, when we repeat, now the Kiyor is included, one would have to examine why. We have the making of the courtyard, and we have the partitions of the courtyard. We have discussed a lot of this in the, uh, in the past. Okay, that is an overview of Parshas Vayakel, the redundancy of what is going on over here. The Aram, by the way, previous year, I think last year, we gave a she'er. It's interesting to listen online if you'd like. Where is the Aron today? Here we have the detailed description of the building of the Aron. We know the Aron did not appear in the Second Temple. It was already hidden between the First and Second Temples. The Second Temple was somewhat diminished spiritually. It was inferior because of it. So where is that Aron today? We know where uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark would like us to believe the Aron is today. it will be fascinating to know that it's not clear cut and there is a lot of conjecture it ranging from some of the most bizarre places, um, so if you want to, you could listen online. There's source sheets for that. But we go back to the beginning of the parsha. That's what I want to start with today. All the way back in the beginning of the parsha. Vayaka Moshe. Vayaka Moshe. We're on page uh, five sixteen in the girl Stone Chumash. Page five sixteen. Vayaka Moshe is <laughs> called Bnei Yisrael. Eile Hashem Moshe assembles, Moshe gathers the entire assembly, all of the Jewish people, and he says to them, these are the things that Hashem has commanded to do them. These are the things that God commanded, la to do them. Okay, there's so much to talk about even here just on this opening, just on this opening uh, pasuk. Let's start with this. We're about to get into the laws of So, What is it that he teaches them? Let's keep reading for a second. Six days do work. The seventh day is holy, is sacred. It's a day of rest for God. You must. Whoever does work, creative labor on that day, it's a capital crime, you're put to death. And now we're given that one, that one act of creative labor, explicitly, you may not ignite a fire in your dwelling. The Yom Shabbas on Shabbos day. What is Shabbos doing here? What is Shabbos doing here? Why can't we get on with the repetition of the Malach of the Mishkan? What is Shabbos doing here? So look at the Balaturim. If you have your Mikros look at the Balaturim. Balaturim is written by Rav Yaakov Ben Usher, the son of the Rush, who appears in the back of our Gemara, known as the Baal HaTurim, because he also wrote the tour, the four columns, which made the. The uh, make up the predecessor of the Shulchan So he writes the following, Vayakel. Ksiv at the end of last week's Parsha, we make the mistake of viewing the Parsha in isolation in a vacuum, rather than recognizing them in succession, seeing the Parsha as a continuation of the Parsha before. But if you recall, what happened at the end of last week's Parsha? What was the very end of last week's Parsha? Moshe descends from the mountain, and Moshe looks a little bit different. The Torah describes... It's not a spray tan that he has, but he's, got, but he's got this light that emanates, that radiates from him. And what happens at the end of last week's Pascha? The people see their figure, Moshe. Moshe, their emissary, their ambassador, who speaks directly to the Almighty. And he comes back and his face is radiating light. Horns of light. The origin of the misconception, obviously, that Jews have horns comes from here. People who've read the Bible but never met a Jew presume erroneously that Jews like Moshe have those horns. Moshe comes down with these horns of light radiating and the people are intimidated. They're afraid. They recoil with fear from it. So much so that the end of the last six parasha tells us Moshe has to don a mask. He wears a covering because the people won't engage him otherwise. And the only time he takes off that mask is when he teaches them Torah. That's when they should experience the full countenance of what he had experienced in drawing close to Hashem. So the Baal Turim says the following, Ksiv le'el Karon panav, shabbos lomar, She'ein adom shal shabbos Yomim. Baal Turim quotes a beautiful medrash. You know why we begin with Shabbos this week? It's the perfect continuation of last week. Moshe came back from that closeness with the Rebonus Shalom, and he radiated light. When do we radiate light? When do our faces change? When do we relax and have serenity and tranquility and pursue spirituality? When can we achieve that radiated light? Shabbos. She'en Adom HaKiru Shabbos You cannot compare... Our face on Shabbos to other days. All week long we're filled with angst and anxiety and stress and we're running and we have to go and we have to do. Shabbos comes and we're overwhelmed, we're overcome with a sense of serenity. What a beautiful, beautiful Balaturim quoting the Mejr. So I want to take it a step further and tell you something amazing. You know, there's a halacha, the Gemara and Tzubas on Dafkes tells us there's a halacha that if a couple get married, if a couple get married, we know that for seven days following that wedding, we recite Sheva Brachas. Is Sheva Brachas an obligation? It's a misconception. People feel you have to make Sheva Brachas. When I got married, everybody had Sheva Brachas all seven nights. You didn't get off. It was exhausting for everybody. It was wonderful. It was celebratory. But it was uh, a little bit burdensome. It was, it was exhausting. Today it's become a minute already. Young couples, they take a night or two off. So the millennial generation, by the way. They need a night or two off from other people serving them and waiting on them hand and foot. There was an article in the Washington Times last week. I reserve the right to use this in a drusha But there was an article in the Washington Times that showed that cereal sales is down 30%. I mentioned this last week. 30, cereal sales is down 30%. Why is cereal sales down 30%? So, the cereal companies did an analysis and they found that millennials don't eat cereal because it would require you to wash the bowl afterwards. (laughs) It's an inconvenient food because you have to wash the bowl afterwards. Okay. Anyway, so we have Sheva Brachas after a wedding. And again, it's not mandatory, it's not obligatory to have Sheva Brachas, it's that you're entitled. What's the circumstances? If you gather with the bride and groom within seven days of when they got married, and now here's the kicker. Who needs to be there in order to enable or to allow Shevah Brachos to be recited? You need panim Chadashos. Okay, you've all made a few weddings. You need panim Chadashos. You need someone new who wasn't at the wedding. And if there's a presence of it, it's a debate. Do you need one person? Do you need two people? Men, women, do children qualify? Do they need to... Uh, there's a big machlokas. What were they at the wedding for? What were they at the wedding for, in order to be? Or what were they not at the wedding for? I should say, in order to be eligible to be param chadashos, to entitle you to recite shema So here we have a big machlokas. The Rambam, the Rambam says param is someone shaldayin lo someone who is not at the, did not hear the chuppah. If you were not at the chuppah, you came late to the wedding, and you only made it for the meal you're eligible to still be Panam Chadashas to enable shema Brachas the rest of the week. That's the opinion of the Rama. The Rosh, however, and the tour disagree. And they say, if you missed... They say, it's the opposite. If you were at the, uh, if were at the chuppah, but you missed the meal, you're eligible to be at the shema Brachas, you're still considered Panam Chadashas. In other words, they debate what is the criteria... That turns you into a Param chadash. What makes you someone new who has not yet participated in the wedding? Somebody who didn't wasn't at the chuppah, or somebody who wasn't at the meal. So the Stiepergum, Rav uh, the father of Rav Chaim Kanievsky, one of our gedolim today, the great Stiepergum, the Kielos Yankif, in his uh, in his sefer on Ksubas, in Simon Vov, he has a whole essay in and he wants to say that the Rambam and the Rosh are disagreeing about. For whom do you need Panam Chadashos? Is it that when you have new people who weren't at the wedding, so now the bride and groom have renewed sense of joy? It's as if the wedding is all over again for them. There's new people there who weren't with them yet. So now they are as excited as they were previously. Or is it new? Or is it no? The Panam Chadashos, those new people who have not yet heard the birchas Hasanim, you know, the Sheva brachas really are incumbent on the tzibur. It's on the kihila, it's on the assembly. It's on those who are gathered. Their are birchas they're blessings of praise. You're praising God, you're praising and blessing this young couple. So it falls on those who are gathered to give those blessings. So maybe the Panam Chadashos is that those who are, who miss the now have an obligation to offer those blessings. And the Stipro says that's the Machalakus between the Rambam and the Rush. Is Panam a din and the Hassan and Ka'ala, their joy... Or is Panam Chadashos a din in the attendees of the Sheva brachos? And now since they have not yet recited these blessings of praise, now is their opportunity. And that's why you have the difference of what's the Machayef? Is it that if you were at the chuppah but you missed the meal, you could still be Panam Chadashos? Or no, you were missed the chuppah but you were at the meal, then you could be Panam Chadashos. He explains that's the nature. Toshos in Ksubas. You'll see what I'm getting in a second. You're asking what does this have to do with the parsha? Toshos, they're in Ksubas. Tosfos says, Shabbos is Panam Chadashos. When you make Shavu Brachos and Shabbos, you don't have to worry, did we invite someone who wasn't at the wedding? Although it's always complicated who you're going to invite who wasn't at the wedding. If you're so close to inviting them for Shavu Brachos, why didn't you invite them for the wedding? And don't worry, because that's exactly what they think when they get the invitation to your in Brachos. I'm good enough to be the Panam Chadashos so you can say Brachos. but I didn't make the cut for the wedding. So you have to find someone who was invited to the wedding but couldn't make it so Tosos says that Chadashos Shabbos is panim Chadashos Shabbos is Panam Chadashos so you don't need anyone new even if everyone at that meal was already at the wedding for both the chuppah and the meal still Shabbos qualifies as Panim Chadashos what does it mean for Shabbos to qualify as Panam Chadashos so traditionally Tosos is understood to mean that Shabbos brings you joy Shabbos brings you joy. If the whole essence, right? Tosos is Lushita, so Tosos is of the opinion that the reason you need Param Chadashos in order to be able to recite Sheba Brachos is the Chassan and Kala have to renew their sense of joy. They have to feel the same sense of Simcha. It's the wedding all over again. So if a new person can provide that joy for them during the week, Shabbos can provide that joy for them on Shabbos. So it's Shabbos. Everybody loves Shabbos. Shabbos is the greatest. So Shabbos gives joy to a chasson and that enables them, entitles them to recite panim chadashis. But I saw a fantastic explanation in the Menachem Tzirah, Menachem Ben Sion Sachs. I love to quote him, not only because his grandson and great-grandchildren are members of our shul, but he has phenomenal divrit Torah. Menachem tzir. In his commentary on Bereshis, in his commentary on when it says, Vayibarach as vay so When he's talking about Shabbos itself, he says... You know what the shot that Shabbos is panim Chadashos? You know what it means that Shabbos is that new face? Not that the joy of this esoteric concept called Shabbos gives you joy. It's that on Shabbos, we all have panim Chadashos. So even the people who are at the wedding, their Vahadikah panim was at the wedding. Their weekday face was at the wedding. But their Shabbos face? Oh, it's brand new. You put on your Shabbos clothing, you take your Shabbos shower, you shave, you get ready, you light the candles, you bring in the light of Shabbos, the peace, the serenity, the calm, the joy. It's not that Shabbos, the concept, the time, brings Panam Chadashos. He suggests that Shabbos mahapech transforms our old face into a new face. The Kabbalah Shabbos, and that's what he says the Pshat is, when we sing every Friday night, of Shlomo Alkabetz in his fantastic piyut. What do we sing every Friday night in Kabbal Shabbos? L'chadodi. And what do we say? L'chadodi, l'kras kalah. Come, my beloved, to greet the queen. Pene Shabbos nekabla. Let's go receive our pene Shabbos. So what does that mean? Let's go receive our pene Shabbos. You only sing it every Friday night. What does it mean? So traditionally it means pene Shabbos nekabla. Let's go receive Shabbos. Let's go receive Shabbos For Shlomo al the great Kabbalists in Tzvah. Used to go out, the students of the Ari, they'd go out into the mountains, they'd see the sunset, they would be draped in a talus, and they would literally welcome the Shabbos queen. And that's what we do every Friday night, we sing le we are welcoming the Shabbos queen. It says the Menachem Tzim, no, that's not what it means. Pene Shabbos, the Kabla means, let's put on our Shabbos face. Pene the face of Shabbos, the Kabla, let's go receive, go put on your Shabbos, take off that. Fabissimah, worried, anxious, angry, stressed, resentful. Take off that Vachadikah face and put on that Shabbos, that Pnei Shabbos, Nikabla. Go put on that wonderful, wonderful Shabbos face. So that's a great shot of the Menachem Tzion, of Menachem Ben Zaks. He explains the Tosos, what does it mean, Panam Chadashos? When you make Sheva Brachas and Shabbos, you don't need anyone new. Shabbos is the Panam Chadashos. What, this esoteric time called Keshavos? No. The Panam, every one of us. The family members of the bride and groom. The guests who have already been at the wedding. They've been at Sheva Brachas every night already. But the Sheva Brachas of Shabbos are altogether different. They have their Panam Chadashos. Pnei Shabbos nekabla. We put on our Shabbos face on Friday night. We transform ourselves. We are different. We are transformed on Shabbos the Rav. Rabbi Salavechik. I wish I had the quote here. Vaisal told the story of Mujtah Shtibel in his hometown when he was a child, that he would go into towards the end of Shabbos, looking for a marav minyan. And they were still at Shabbos Shittas, and they were still singing and singing this kind, singing that, telling it Torah. And it was way past the time that Shabbos ended. So he saw this chassid, and at first he started asking the chassid, no, is marav? So the chassid said to the Rav as a young man, no, you don't recognize me? So the Rav describes, he writes so beautifully, Take a closer look at this man. And the man was a laborer, a water carrier all week. He was this poor man, this schlepper. He was disheveled and, and, and falling apart, wearing tattered clothing. And he looked at this man now. And though the man's bekisha, the Rav described, had holes in it. and was dusty and old. But still, he didn't recognize the man. Because when Shabbos came and this man put down the water pails and put on his torn and worn out Bekasha, he was transformed. The Rav describes, he didn't recognize him. And the man turned to the Rav and he said words that were seared into his consciousness. The man turned to the Rav and he said, do you love the weekday so much that you can't wait for Shabbos to end? Every month of Shabbos, there's somebody who comes to me and points to that clock in the back. (laughs) and says, no, Rabbi, Marv. And every week I say to him, Do you love the weekday so much that you can't wait for Shabbos to end? So that's the transformative power of Shabbos. And that's what the Balaturim is saying here. Vayakel. Why did Moshe gather all of them and explain to them about Shabbos right now? Because it's the end of last week's Parsha. They just saw this light radiating from his face. They were intimidated. They recoiled with fear. They wanted to know how could they experience that? So Moshe gathers them and he says, Vayakel. And he tells them, Shabbos you want to have light radiating from your face, you want to be transformed, you want to feel close to the Almighty, it's all through Shabbos. Okay, that's all from the Baal And he continues the Baal Turim. V'amar, balomar, Parsha Shabbos. Now why did this mitzvah of Shabbos require vayakal? We have many, many, many mitzvahs given in the Torah. And most of them, almost all of them, are not preceded by a call for coming together. We're not gathered. So why specifically this mitzvah, Vayakel? Why specifically Shabbos did it require everyone to come together? So the Baal says, Remez B'Shabbos V'yam Tovim Nikolim W'Shom Because Moshe is about to instruct them about Shabbos. There's a hint to the idea that Shabbos is when we come together. Shabbos is when we are a community. And what makes us a community on Shabbos? The Kiddush. The Kiddush creates community. It's very important for creating community. But more than that, It's to learn together. And it's to daven together. It's to hear the drasha and the shir together. You know, we have, I would call it a minag Yisrael, but it's not a, I wouldn't say, legitimate minag. But there are many people who only come to shul on Shabbos. They don't daven in shul during the week. You know you know that sometimes by those who observe a yuritzite, and when they daven marav, they're using the nusuch of Friday night. So the yuritzite becomes clear that they don't attend marav regularly because they're davening marav with the nigum of of Friday night. There are people that don't know. And of course, we would encourage Tfilah B'tzibur is a fundamental principle. It's so important. But the point is that instead of looking at it, it is that they don't come during the week, say, at least they come on Shabbos. Look at the Jewish people that we assemble, that we gather. Right? If you're willing to miss Tfilah B'tzibur all week, why do you not miss Tfilah B'tzibur on Shabbos? Why do you come to Shul on Shabbos? Because Vayakel. Because Shabbos is about community. It's about coming together. And again, the Baal here quotes from the Yaakov Shimoni, he quotes a Medrash, that Shabbos is the time that we gather to daven and to learn and to create community. Okay, let's keep going. When did this happen? When was this? Bayaka HaMosheh. When did he gather all of them, instruct them about Shabbos, and tell them to collect for the Mishkan? So Rashi tells us, Rashi tells us, it was the L'macharas Yom Kippurim. It was the day after Yom Kippur. Kishiyar Ad it's a passive language, he didn't actively gather them, they gathered based on his instruction. But Rashi tells us when did this happen? The day after Yom Kippur. Why did this happen the day after Yom Kippur? So remember that there's a fundamental debate, Rashi and Was the Torah written chronologically or thematically? Yesh Torah, ain Torah. So Rashi is of the opinion that Ein Torah, that things were out of order. And if we go back now and we realize that Truman and Tetzava didn't happen till after Kisisa. So put Truman and Tetzava aside for a moment. Imagine we never read them. And if we were reading the Torah chronologically, we would have read about the Chaita Egel. We would have read of the sin of the golden calf. And only now, in response to that, would we be reading about, about the Mishkan. If you look in the back, probably not most of the This brand new, we just uh, got a shipment of some of the brand new Oritzgral uh, Stone Chumashim. Get your hold of one, you'll, you'll be able to tell it's the non-worn-out ones. And in the back, they put I don't know, 50 pages of color graphs, and it's unbelievable what they added to the back here. So, when you're listening to Vayat, <laughs> try to get your hands on one of the new Chumashim. If your mind should wander, it's wonderful to go through the back here. It's really absolutely incredible. Anyway, they have a chart back there of exactly the way that this whole episode occurred. And what happened? Moshe actually ascended the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights three times. The first time he did it was to receive the Torah. And that's when the people miscalculate and they're waiting for him to return and he doesn't come back and they build the Ego. That's the first 40 days. Then Moshe destroys the egel, he destroys the calf, and he ascends the mountain, this time not to receive Torah, but simply to plead for his nations, his people's survival. He pleads with Hashem to forgive them, and he remains in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he comes down on the 29th of Av, and he returns back to the Machin, back to the camp. So again, when did he go up on the mountain for the first time? The 7th of Sivan. He was there 40 days and 40 nights. He came down the 16th of Tammuz. On the 17th of Tammuz, the people sin with the golden calf. I'm sorry, on the 16th of Tammuz, the nation make a mistake and they think the 40 days are up. The 17th of Tammuz, they build the ego. The 18th of Tammuz, Moshe destroys the ego and goes back up on the mountain to beg forgiveness. Comes down on the 29th of Av. What does he go back up on the mountain for the third time? On the 1st of Elul. And now he's going back for the third time. The second time to receive the Torah. He receives the second set of luchos and he's on the mountain again for 40 days and 40 nights. And he descends from the third time from the mountain. When does he come down? The 40 days and 40 nights end on the 10th of Tishrei. What is the 10th of Tishrei? Yom Kippur. Now you understand Rashi a little bit better. So Moshe doesn't go up on the mountain once for 40 days and 40 nights, he goes up three times. First time to receive the Luchos, he comes down, sees the ego, smashes those Luchos, destroys the ego, goes back up for 40 days, 40 nights to plead for his people's survival, comes back down, he's achieved their God's forgiveness, he appeases the Almighty, he ascends a third time to receive the second set of Luchos, and comes down on the 10th of Tishrei. So, Rashi says, when was this? This was the Maharas Yom Kippur. When is Vayaka Moshe? When does he gather all of them and say, No, it's time for you to start giving money. We're going to build something called the Mishkan, which for Rashi took place after the Egel. When is this? The day after Yom Kippur. Now you can understand. Now you can understand. By the way, there's an amazing grub who tells us, you know, the famous question of the tour, why do we observe sukkus? Why do we observe sukkus When we do, when should we observe Sukkot? We should observe Sukkot in the spring, right after Pesach. Uh, we got out of Egypt and we started dwelling in huts. We started being protected and sheltered by the Almighty. So we should start, we should observe Sukkot, whether it's the Ananiyah Kavod or Sukkos Mamish, whether it's because we received the divine protection of the clouds or because we dwelled in Sukkot. So again, historically, the appropriate time seasonally to celebrate Sukkot would have been in the In the spring, right after Pesach, that's a famous question on the tour, and he answers famously, because if you observe then you go sit outside in your gazebo, you go sit outside in your uh, hut, you go sit outside in your, what do they call that? No, the pergola. Thanks, mom. You go sit outside in the pergola in the spring, so nobody knows, it's not distinguishable that you're doing so to observe a holiday. You're doing so because the weather's nice. So therefore, God put it in the fall when it's either too hot or too cold, it's never just right. Except for in Israel, where we all belong for Sukkot. So that's the tour. But the Gra, the great Vilna Gaon, gave an absolutely totally different explanation. And the Vilna Gaon said, "You know why we observe Sukkot when we do? It works perfectly based on the timeline I just told you. Because when the Jews sinned with the golden calf, yes, until then, already from when they had left Egypt, they had merited to receive the divine protection of the Ananei Hakavod. But with the Chet Egel, God withdrew His Ananei Hakavod." God withdrew His protection. When did He give the Ananiya Kavod back? On that Yom Kippur. When Moshe came down for the third time with the second set of Luchos, and now they were truly forgiven and they were ready to go, that's when the Ananiya Kavod were restored. So says the Vilna Gaon. you know why sukkah falls when it does? Because that's where sukkah belongs. When did we merit the divine protection that we commemorate by sitting in a sukkah? After Yom Kippur exactly the timeline after Yom Kippur that we observe Sukkot even today. It changes your entire observance of Sukkot. Changes your entire orientation historically of Sukkot. So again, make it as if we didn't read Shumat Tzavah. It's as if we went right from Mishpatan into Kisisa. We received the Torah at Sinai. We built an Ego. Moshe had to go up and down three times for 40 days and 40 nights. Yom Kippur we were forgiven. He turns to them and he says, I want to give you a gift called Shabbos. And then he tells them about the Mishkan. That's the actual timeline that we're dealing with over here. The Kliyakar says, that also explains. Look at the Kliyakar. Perish Rashi the Yom Kippur. Historically, we're talking about right after Yom Kippur. I don't understand. Did he gather them to give them Shabbos? Or did he gather to judge the people? Because none of you raised your hand and were bothered that a few weeks ago we read Parshas Yisro. And when we read Parshas Yisro a few weeks ago, how did Yisro begin over there? Rashi tells us there, when did Yisro come to criticize his son-in-law? It's always a good time to criticize your son-in-law. When did, did Yisro come and offer his unsolicited advice to his son-in-law Moshe? When was that? Said Rashi there, ras So says the Kliyakar, I don't get it. Venirah the Farish, so the Kliyakar says, which is it? Is it the Vayakel? Did he gather everyone to give them Shabbos? Or did Moshe sit to adjudicate and to mediate their disputes to which Yisro gave his unsolicited advice? Which is it? Venirah the Farish says, the Kliyakar, it appears to me to explain Shiakua, Shakal, Hakyal Zehaya, Mahodiyel, Mitzvah Samishka, Vanadova. Why did he gather them? Says the Kliyakar, it was to give them Shabbos, but it was also to do the first solicitation. To raise the money for the Meshkan. As we're about to read. So Moshe's about to do a, Picture this. This is the Kleacher's interpretation. Moshe's about to do an appeal. He's about to do a campaign, a capital campaign. And before he launches the capital campaign, listen to what's on Moshe's mind. Before he launches the capital campaign, he says, I'm nervous. What if someone makes a pledge or a gift? From stolen money, from money which isn't really theirs, from money they are withholding from someone else, or well, that belongs to someone else. So therefore And it could be erroneously. Maybe you're in a dispute, you don't even know it. Someone has a claim on you, and you don't even realize it. So you're going to donate your money thinking it belongs to you, and meanwhile, someone else believes it belongs to them. What are you going to do? Build the greatest, most sacred, most most holy place with stolen money? So therefore Moshe announces, Who is isn't dispute with anyone else? Let me know. Come forth now or forever hold your peace. If you have an issue, you have a beef with someone else, come let me know. Because let's adjudicate, let's mediate, let's resolve it now so that when the donations are made momentarily for the capital campaign of the Mishkan, it's all pure money. It's all holy money. There are actually chubas written. It's a big discussion. Jewish institutions, organizations, mostos, kololim, yeshivas, shuls, built with tainted money. What happens? Bernie Madoff later made a large donation somewhere. Can you keep that money? Do you have to give it back? Your institution to be founded on stolen money? So Moshe, there's a big discussion in Halacha. How do you do it? What do you do about it? But Moshe wanted to avoid getting into that problem to begin with. So that's how the Kliyakar resolves. I don't understand. Did Vayakal happen Yom Or does Yisro discover Moshe pursuing Mishpat? Mimachras Which is it? says the Kliyakar, both. Before he gathered them to launch the capital campaign, he first announced, "New no, anyone who's got an issue with someone else, step forward now and let's resolve it so that the money is all pure. Fascinating. Okay. Let's keep going. What should we look at now? Okay. Let me share with you from Rabbi Salavitch. On these opening words, Vayaka Moshe, it's called Daspan Yisrael. The Moshe called all of them together. Says the Rav, there are two types of transgressions, public and private. Rav Ben Zakkai ruled that one who steals in secret, a ganav, is punished more severely than a Gazlam, one who engages in open robbery. Who did a more severe transgression? Somebody who steals privately or somebody who's brazen and bold and unashamed and steals publicly? The Ganav or the Gazlan? So Rav Yochanan Ben-Zakai says, if you steal in secret, a Ganav receives a greater punishment than the Gazlan. Why? Because a Gazlan is not hypocritical about his ethics. He fears neither God nor human beings. However, while a Ganav fears human beings, he does not fear God. The behavior of the Ganav is therefore more offensive to God than that of the goslem. If you steal in private, you're just afraid of people, not God. If you steal in public, you're equally unafraid of everyone. So the Rev continues, This is not the case when it comes to violation of Shabbos. One who violates Shabbos publicly denies the creation and the Creator. While violating Shabbos in private does not involve heresy, since by definition testimony is a public declaration. By publicly observing the Shabbos, one testifies to God's creation of and sovereignty over the world. A Jew publicly desecrates the Shabbos testifies in effect that the world created itself. Therefore, the act of desecration is tantamount to apostasy. There's a fundamental principle in Judaism. A machal Shabbos is ki'in lu'kofer kula. A person who violates Shabbos publicly is if they deny the authenticity of Torah, you deny God's existence. You are an apostate. And says the Rav, this is hinted to in our opening words. Vayakel, as called Adas B'nai Yisrael. You know, the Jewish people are referred to in many different ways. B'nai Yisrael, Knessus Yisrael, Adas Yisrael, what are the others? Many different descriptions, appellations that describe the Jewish people. But here, says the Rav, specifically the word Eidah is chosen. The word Eidah, of which Adas is the construct form, comes from the word Eid. Which means witness. Moshe assembled the entire nation to teach them that the Jewish charge to act as a witness through keeping Shabbos. How do you function as adas ben Yisrael? When do you fulfill the mission of being eidim, testifying to God's existence? When you observe Shabbos, keeping Shabbos is testimony to God's existence. Violating Shabbos and doing so publicly is heresy. It is denying, it is denying God's existence. So that was true for many, many generations. And the halacha was consistent with that statement. By the way, this is what we do. On Friday night, if you miss faykhulu, right after the amida, what happens if you miss, you're still davening your long amida, you have a lot of kavanah. So you miss the chazam and the community together, say faykhulu. So some have the minak to do what? to find someone else near them and say, would you recite Vayichulu with me? Where did that minna come from? Where's that custom from? Because what is Vayichulu? It's the paragraph about Shabbos. And through observing Shabbos, we are testifying to God's existence, that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. When you offer testimony, do you do it alone, singularly? How is testimony offered or proffered? Testimony is given in A pair. So therefore, there's a custom that you find a second person you say vayichulu with them, and through that recitation of Vayahulu, you are offering testimony to God. The Chazanish said it's unnecessary. Chazanish didn't like that custom. And what was his evidence? He said, "This is a nice idea that you're offering testimony, but when you say vaihulu, you're not literally offering testimony that you need to find a second person." And what was the Chazanish's evidence? When do we say vayichulu? What time of day? Say it at night. Can you give testimony at night? No. So clearly it's not real testimony It's symbolic, it's a gesture of testimony Chazanish said you need not find a second person Even if you had that long shemona Esrei But we offer Etus so The Rav says In our observance of Shabbos is testimony By the way, if you consider for a moment Does anyone know of anyone in the world That doesn't observe a seven day week? Seven is an odd number Literally, and it's a peculiar number It's a peculiar unit of time but implicit within entire civilization's structure of our week is testimony to God's existence. Where did it come from that the entire world would observe a seven-day week? It's not a number that's worth using for a lot of reasons. It's already been written about extensively. That the world's usage of a seven-day week is an implicit testimony to God's existence. That's consistent with this theme, Adas B'nai Israel, Edus B'nai Israel. It's an extension of our lives. We introduced the concept of Sabbath to the, to the world, of Shabbos to the world. The world didn't know about Shabbos until we introduced it. And now they've, some have kept it on the same day as us, some have moved it to another day. But the institution of a concept of Shabbos in a seven-day week is ours. That's the testimony that we offered to the world. So the Rav writes, and this is based on Allah, the Gemara the a machal Shabbos of somebody who violates Shabbos publicly, is kofr be'cholotarakula. Is a kofr be'ikr. They deny the very existence of God and the creation of the world, and they are written out of the Jewish community. The halacha is somebody who observes Shabbos, who violates Shabbos publicly, cannot get an aliyah, can't count in a minyan, their testimony is not accepted. That was the halacha for thousands of years, and things changed. Already in the 18th, the 19th century, the binyan sion of Yaakov Etlinger the Binyan Siam. Those of you who knew Hannah Wagner, she was a great granddaughter of the Binyan Siam of Rav Yaakov Etlinger. So Rav Yaakov Etlinger in Shuva Simachov <laughs> Gimel writes, adin, Until now we were discussing can Machal Shabbos somebody violate Shabbos publicly? Can they receive an Aliyah, Do they count for a minion? Can their testimony be accepted? But we were talking in theory. The Ben Yitzin of Yaakov Etlinger lived from 1798 to 1871. He was a leading postdoc in Germany at the time. And he says, In our time, in the 19th century, He says, you know, once upon a time, the community structure kept people observing Shabbos. We lived in a ghetto. We lived insular, insulated lives. Somebody who was, Mechal Shabbos Mephaesiyah, was making a statement of heresy. It was an act of rebelliousness. In an insular Jewish community in which everyone was scrupulous about Shabbos, for someone to boldly and brazenly stand up and violate Shabbos, it was a statement of rebellion. And therefore, we treated them we reciprocated their rebelliousness. You want to be rebellious? That's fine, you're out. You're not in the minion, you can't get Nalia, your testimony you can't be accepted. And we're not interested in your marrying our children. That was the position when you have publicly exercised yourself from the community. Excised yourself from the community. But it says the Binyan of Yaakov Eplinger already in the 19th century. But now that assimilation has grown widespread, and now that there is no insular Jewish community, from which one would have to be bold and brazen and rebellious to stop observing Shabbos. Now it's a viable alternative. Now life is a menu, it's a shmork of choices. Do you want to be Shomer Shabbos? Do you want to be Shomer Shabbos? Do you want to be Shomer half Shabbos? Three quarters of Shabbos? Do you want to be socially orthodox, modern orthodox, fully orthodox, half orthodox, unorthodox, open orthodox? What What kind of orthodox? What do you want? Now the world is a menu of choices and alternatives. So now, says Rav Yaakov Edler, you're already writing in the beginning of the 19th century, we no longer treat a Machal Shabbos before as a Machal Machalot Argula. And a Machal Shabbos can be counted in a minyan and can receive an aliyah. And so the halacha, halacha doesn't change, but halacha has been adjusted to the changing circumstance in terms of how we view that Machal Shabbos before hasiyah. So the Rav says, you see this all from our open pasuk. I know this is normally in our sheer. We love to just go through the Mikros Gedolos. But VaYakha is a little challenging, as you saw from the lack of Rashi. So we're bringing in all these other, I hope for you, fascinating sources as they are for me. So here the Rav says the word, Moshe gathers specifically Adas B'nai Israel, because in introducing Shabbos, how does he introduce it? With the concept of Adas, they are giving Adus. Shabbos is how we give Adus. We testify to God's existence in this world by observing a Shabbos. And civilization testifies to God's existence by our collectively having embraced a seven-day, a seven-day week. Okay, let's keep going. Okay, let's look at the Rambam. The Rambam. The Rambam, like Rashi, feels that this is written in order. So why did you have Trumat Tzavah, then the ego, and now we have Ayaka Acapacde all over again. If the Mishkan was really given before the ego ever occurred, why do we need to repeat it? Why does it have to be given all over again? So there are writes. You have pasacals. There are bond rights. how a tissue. falling apart over here. An old man. Old man. The Ramban writes, The reason he included everyone, why was everyone gathered for this? We already asked. We don't gather everyone before every mitzvah. What's so special about this mitzvah? So the Ramban says the reason is because everyone wants to be included in the opportunity to give. Moshe had communicated to Aaron, his brother, to the Nisim, the leaders, to B'nei Yisrael, all that God had communicated to him on our Sinai, post the breaking of the Luchos. And he put on his face that mask. He gathered everyone together again this was on the day after he descended from the mountain like for Rashi historically the Mishkan was the antidote to the Chaita Egel. the ego happened and only then was the Mishkan introduced God said, we saw the Kuzari last week God said, you want something tangible through which to connect with me? No problem. You can't make it up. You can't invent it. You can't initiate it, but I will. Here's the Mishkan. But according to the rabban, no. The Mishkan was given before the egel ever happened. So why is it repeated here? Because God wants the people to know what a powerful view. That... Since they've reconciled, now that he's been appeased, they can go back to the way it was. There is no residual impact. God does not bear a grudge. So, you know, it's as if God gave them the mishkan and then they went through the chayta ego. So they got separated. They got separated. People had to move out. God said, I don't want to live with you in one house. We're separated. And now they've reconciled. And God says, it's time to come home. I want to live together again under one roof. Now you can live together under one roof and be under probation and invoke the memory of everything you did wrong and have that terrible act of infidelity be at the forefront of every conversation or you can reconcile, go back under one roof, rebuild trust as if it were a new year wedding day and you're starting from the very beginning. It says the Rambam, they repeat everything to show us that when God forgave us, He really forgave us we had the opportunity to start again. He did not bear a grudge. He did not carry it forward. They should know that God would dwell among them with the same intensity that He did originally. This was, if you see the parallel in the human world, A couple who have a magnificent chuppah, a magnificent wedding, magnificent celebration, tremendous loyalty and love and faithfulness towards one another. And then there's a breach of that trust. One of the parties had an affair and they separate and it's heading toward divorce. But they work on it. They go to counseling and they work hard and they reconcile. So you know what they might do? They might have a second wedding, a second chuppah. They celebrate. We're reconciling as if anew transformed ourselves to begin again. It's a very beautiful image because this is actually what we achieve every Yom Kippur. Again, if our Yom Kippur is modeled after this transgression and our opportunity to come back at second chances, that's what we achieve as well. God grants us something that most human beings are incapable of. If somebody violated us the way we violated God, it would be still in the back of our memory somewhere. And when we got into that little fight, we'd say, well, of course you act that way. Don't you remember? You're the one who cheated on me. Are you upset at me for doing this? That pales in comparison to what you did to me. We are very good. Our memories may not work for everything, but for the hurt that people caused us, we all have, we all have uh, perfect memories. We all know everything. This is actually a pshat. We said in last week's parsha. remember the Yud Gimom Midos, God's 13 attributes? Hashem, Hashem, Keoracham, B'chanam. Why does it repeat Hashem, Hashem? There's a big risk in repeating Hashem, Hashem. One can make the mistake of thinking we believe in multiple gods. We only believe in one God, of course. Monotheism. So why do we say Hashem, Hashem, Ka'aracha, Vachanub? So the commentators all explain. Gemara in the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah. Why do we say Hashem, Hashem? I am God before the Khet, and I am the same God after the Khet. I am no different. I'm capable of loving you as if you never did that to me. And that's the height that we strive to achieve both when someone hurts us, if we truly forgive, we should seek to achieve the level of returning and restoring to where we were before, and from the perspective of the perpetrator, the forgiveness we seek to receive, the trust that we seek to rebuild is to restore the relationship to where it once was. So the Ramban says, all of Ayake Pakude, this redundancy, this repetition, all of it is to communicate God's love for us, that we restored and we reset and we went back to where we were before. Back to the factory settings. We restored it all the way back to the very beginning. So God gives it to us again. Truma, as if we started all over again. Hashem, <laughs> Hashem, God loves us, is so affectionate towards us. He's willing to be the same God before and the same God after the Chet. Okay, let's keep going. You're going to love this one. Sheh yamin ki asem Six days you do work, six days you do work, seventh day you rest. The Medrash Chazal saw something very important and powerful from here. What could the Torah have said? Make sure you rest one day a week. You want to rest seven days a week? Big But make sure to rest at least one day a week, because God rested one day a week. But the Torah does not say that. And this is contrary to other philosophies. And it's contrary to other religions. And it's contrary to what some members of our own religion believe as well. By the Torah saying, You know what the Torah is telling us? There is a value and a virtue to work. It's not just rest on the seventh day, and if you like, rest all seven days, but just make sure you rest one day. It's that don't rest more than one day. The seventh day is not a minimum, it's a maximum. It's not saying make sure to rest at least one day, It's saying, only rest one day. And the other six days, there is a Torah mandate. We embrace the concept of work. To us, work is holy. Work is sacred. You don't just emulate and imitate God when you rest, because He rested. You also have to emulate and imitate God when you work, like He worked. He created. We have to create. This is explicit in the Medrash. Precious Rabbi, I endowed, you Says the Medrash. Rabbi Yomar, Chaviva yamalacha Mischos <coughs> Avos. Work, labor is more precious than ancestral merit. Sheschus Avos yitzila mamon and molacha nefashos. Sheschus Avos yitzila mamon. Sheschus Avos nefashos. The merit of our forefathers can save our money. in the nefashos. That the merit of our work can save lives. So the Medrash says, you know what your greatest yichus is? It's not your yichus. It's what you create in your yichus going forward. Yichus is not only about your past. Yichus is about the yichus you leave your children. So says the Medrash, Chaviva Molocha More beloved, more appreciated, of greater value, is the work you do, the imprint you leave on the world. Don't be passive. Don't rest. Don't retire. You can't have Shabbos seven days a week. Enjoy golf, mahjong, tennis, an hour a day. But the rest of those hours, volunteer, create, learn, teach, do, lead. There's so much to accomplish and to achieve. Six days a week we work. This is what the mission of Pirk tells us in the second paragraph. Kotora Sha'ini Mamalaha, Sofa Batelah Bagoreras Avam. Rab Gamaliao Torah's Yafatama Torah in Derachharts. Kotora Shaini Mamalacha Sofa Batelah. If you have the toga but you don't have the six days of work, it's sofa batelah bagoreras avam. It leads to sin. It's it's if you are if you're inactive, if you're passive, if you're not accomplishing, achieving, influencing, creating, then it leads to avam. Sofa batelah. The Rambam writes this explicitly in Hilchos Talmud Torah. The Rambam writes, "Anyone who comes to the conclusion that he should involve himself in Torah without doing work and derive his livelihood from charity, let me read it to you in the Hebrew." Feel free to print that out and put it on your front door. Anyone who dedicates themselves to only learn Torah and not do work. And, and listen, if you can afford that, more power to you. If you are the Yechidei Skula, if you are the highest level, and that you are going to contribute from that learning to Prince Faram, to become a poseik, to become a great teacher in Israel, if you are among the elite, it's absolutely our obligation to support you. Now, I'm not, listen, I'm like a modern, why you guys, I'd be putting favor for saying this, I'm reading to you a Rambam. Hilchos <laughs> Talmud Torah, Perak Gimel, Perak Gimel, Allah Say so It's a b'fair shahafan a rambam Harizah khinnlas Hashem. U'bazah esa Torah. You're dishonoring Torah. V'khiba ma'or hadas. You're extinguishing the light of faith. The garam ra You're causing harm to yourself. The natal bin ulama abba. And you're forfeiting your world to come. Shahas allah hanaz bin Torah ba'ulama So rambam for us work is not a concession. Not that oh, I gotta work because I gotta pay the bills. Really, I wish I didn't have to. For us, work is not a concession; it's a way of life. It's a mandate. It's a philosophy. It's part of our religious experience. Only <laughs> then, the Rev writes, in lonely man of faith. There is no doubt that the term "image of God" in the first account refers to man's inner charismatic endowment as a creative being. Listen to the Rev. Man's likeness to God expresses itself in man's striving and ability to become a creator. Our likeness of God is not just in resting. Our likeness to God is in creating as well. And so you see that from these words, For us, work is not a concession. Toil, labor, effort are not concessions. They are a primary philosophy of what we believe. Let me leave you with one last thought. Believe it or not, the hour is already up. Lo sevaru esh b'chomashu aseichem. The Torah singles singles out this one malacha of kindling a fire, havaru. And the Gemara notices that it has long discussions about havaru being singled out. The Ibn Ezra writes, let's get back to the Torah's G'dayos, at Please. least for a bit. The Ibn Ezra writes, lo sevaru b'avur shehizkir b'yam arish b'meshvi b'chag g'atz kom l'ach lo'yaz sal'hem la'atir u'chol nefesh am'at b'chavos lo sevaru esh la'afos l'achim v'lashal baser. Ke'esh t'oruch b'chomach Torah here uses this one Malacha. Why? Because it's through this one Malacha that we distinguish between Shabbos and Yantif. Shabbos you can't have a fire. You can't light a new fire. You have to ask, uh, you can only light from an existing flame, but you're allowed to ignite a new fire from an existing flame. So since that's the one distinction between Shabbos and Yantif, says the Ibn Ezra, that's why the Torah singles it out. The Baal says something a little scary. The fires of Gehenim, I put them on hold. I lower the flames for Shabbos. So I lowered my flame, you should lower yours. That's what the Baal Torah says. Beautiful thought. Says the Sfarnaum. Why did the Torah single out fire? Because normally, what's prohibited on Shabbos? creative labor to imitate God in the Rav's words creative labor right it's a total misconception work is not what's forbidden on Shabbos if you can walk to shul in Boca in August you will shvitz much more than if you were to turn on a light so why is it you can't turn on a light but you can walk to shul in Boca in August because labor is not what's forbidden creative labor is what's forbidden so says the Sforno I might have thought lighting a fire is not creative labor it's destructive Right? What's forbidden at Shabbos? Creating. When you destroy kilko, kilko is only also awesome middurabbana. Kilko is not malaches Mahshavas. Creative labor has to be productive, creative, positive. If it's destructive, then it's not biblically it's not part of malaches Mahshavas. So I might have thought fire is part of that kilko. Says, says the morning, oh, that's why the Torah has to tell me that the fire is singled out, because while fire can be destructive, it's also very constructive. It's a source of light, source of energy, source of warmth, and so on. But I want to tell you something very interesting. So, fire is singled out here. I've shared this with you before in the past, but I want to read it to you from the sources inside. You're not allowed to light a fire. This is what's singled out. So, the tzutukim, those who historically only embraced the written Torah and rejected our oral tradition, they read this passage and they said... It says you can't have a fire in Chavez, So they would sit in the dark and eat cold food because they accept only the written Torah. And if you read verbatim the written Torah, it says you can't have a fire. So how could you have a light on? How could you have a fire burning? How could you have hot food? They would sit in the dark. So already going back to the time of the Balamor, already going back to the time of the Balamor, of Zerachiah Halevi, of Gorona. He lived in the middle of the uh, 12th century. And he writes, there was a takanas Chachamim in his time, in the 12th century, the Balamor. A Takhanos Chachamim on Shabbos, to eat something hot. This is the origin of the Minug of Chalant. You're laughing at me, this is the origin of Chalant. Eating Chalant on Shabbos is a mitzvah. Not tafka Chalant, any hot food, Chalant or green corn soup or Chamin or wherever you come from, whatever your version, Although we should know that the word Chant is already used by the orzarua in the mid-1200s. In the mid-1200s, the orzarua already uses the word Chant. The idea that we have food that you leave on from before Shabbos until Shabbos Day, who could only be heated by a fire which pre-existed and which was maintained. So the Baal Amor quotes a Takhanas Chachamim, that one should eat half food. Why? Why eat half food on Shabbos? So the Takanas Chachamim was, in order, in order to affirm that you are not a min, In order to affirm that you weren't a heretic, that you weren't a Sadducee, a Tsaduki. The Sadducees and the Karayim who only take the literal v- version of the written Torah would sit in the dark and eat cold food. So how did you distinguish yourself? How did you identify that you were someone who embraced the rabbinic tradition of the Torah Shabbat If you had hot food on Shabbos Day, we know that you were somebody who believes in the Torah Shabbat Because the only way for you to have food, hot food on Shabbos Day is if you have a fire, which you've maintained since before Shabbos. So you think I'm crazy, but you should know, it's in Shulchan Aruch. Hilcha Shabbos simen nun zayin, se'if ches. At the very end, the Ramah writes, mitzvah lahat nun la Shabbos, k'nei shiyocha ochhamen be Shabbos, k'izel mikovit v'onik Shabbos. There is a mitzvah to retain hot food from before Shabbos and eat it on Shabbos. V'chom yishenom amen b'tibrecha if you're invited for Shabbos lunch to someone's house and they don't serve anything hot, you gotta worry. They might be a carrot They might be a sacrifice. They might be a heretic. You gotta check them out. You gotta worry. So the Ramah writes and the Mishnah Brurah amplifies this mitzvah. Mishnah Brurah writes. We'll close with this. Everyone know the Mishnah Bruro, The great uh, Chavot Chaim, Yisrael Meir Kagan of Raden, lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. An amazing video came out last year they discovered in some archives. Actually, to see the Chavot Chaim walking it was incredible. So writes the Chavot Chaim already in Raden, in Poland, in the 20th century. We see people are lax in this. It's too hot out, I don't want to have hot food. It's too this, it's too that. We already see, says the Chavetz Chaim and Raden, that people are being lax. But it's a big mistake. By not leaving the hot food on from before Shabbos and fulfilling this, you're going to end up asking an Anandjou to do something for you on Shabbos. And they're going to come to Biblical prohibitions. How are you going to make tea if you didn't leave hot water up from before Shabbos? You didn't leave the hot water up, and now you're going to have to ask an Anju, could you make me tea, could you make me coffee? That's a mirror to You're going to do worse. You're going to violate He goes on and on. And so on. And therefore he says, one should be scrupulous and careful in this observance. So again, we saw a lot here, Rashi and Ramban. Does this come before or after the chayta egel? We saw... Why does Moshe assemble everybody? Because it's Adas, we're about to give testimony, and because they're all participating in the Mishkan. We saw that for us, Malacha work is not a concession, it's actually a virtue, it's noble, it's a value, it's part of our value system. And finally we saw those Savaru Aish. this was singled out because it's distinct from, it's one of the distinguishing factors between Shabbos and Yontif. And we affirm that we are rabbinic Jews, that we believe in the, in the uh, validity of the Torah Shabbat Peh by making sure that so everyone go enjoy some delicious challenge this Shabbos. Again, I remind you, Rabbi Moskowitz's amazing Sheer and Sefer Daniel continues now. And again, I encourage you to join us for Rabbi Krohn on Thursday night and Rav Schechter on Sunday morning. Have a great day.